0: We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex.
1: The Culture and Anarchy Podcast.
0: And what is the mechanic? Liberty.
1: The government becomes so, so, so overbearing, so overbearing. There is no
0: such thing as capitalism. The
1: anarchy has sold the world the fiction that they represent a form of social ownership.
0: Our military organization today it out. bears little relation to that known take it, take it. of any of
1: my predecessors in peace time. I don't know what that means, Al. What does that mean? We back off! We'll bring all our troops home. We'll bring all our missiles home. We'll we defend. What America. the hell do you think? We'll do it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. We'll do The argument for freedom is reaching more Anarchy. people. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. Culture and anarchy. Well, and where is it the authority of Constitution, Constitution. Constitution press to police the world? What the hell I did you
0: get to Secretary do? No. Well, do it live!
1: It's time we brought our troops home from around the world. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Well, what are you fearful of? Culture and anarchy. Man will be
0: what he was born to be free and independent, the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist.
1: Welcome to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. I appreciate all the support for the show that I have received throughout the past year. I am very pleased to announce the release of my new book on the subject of language, theology, and grammar, The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, The World's First Argument from Grammar. For those who have weathered the trials and puzzles of religion and have emerged on the other side wondering what in the devil that whole ordeal was about, which occupied your youth and your inmost private thoughts, the God function provides a probing philosophical and epistemological critique of exactly what it is that drives humankind towards religion, theology, and the rational justification for the existence of God. Not quite a work of atheism, agnosticism, nor yet deism, the God function presupposes there is a fourth position that of the grammarian. The argument from grammar explores the denotation of the omnipotent and omniscient god that is justified by reason and dismissed by empiricism in the fields of philosophy and religion. The god function draws upon a philosophical tradition rooted in the thought of Protagoras, the medieval grammarians, John Wycliffe, Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, and Friedrich Hayek. While many atheists have spilled barrels of ink in refuting the existence of God, I turn this critique of theism back upon the atheists in order to show how a proper understanding of grammatical theory can also answer the most successful arguments against the God thesis. God, whether we believe it or not, arrives out of grammar. Please stop by lulu.com or Amazon in order to pick up a copy of the God function. Shoppers at Lulu will receive up to 30% off their purchase. As a reminder, follow me on Twitter by my handle at anarchy underscore culture. And if you'd like to make a small contribution to our show, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com/donate.html. Also, if you can stop by our page on iTunes, please leave a great rating for the show to help move our podcast up the ranks. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents Liberty or Equality The Intergenerational Dialogue of Western Civilization Featuring the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Ernest Renan, William Graham Sumner, and Lord Acton Reinterpreted in the light of Frisier J. Hayek's Theory of Catalactics Diagnosing Romantic Nationalism, Fichte's Ideal Conception of the Universal German Identity. As a young man, Johann Gottlieb Fichte had been inspired by the Continental Enlightenment and many of the ideas that arose out of the French Revolution. He was a student of theology in the late 1780s, which is precisely when the Enlightenment ideas of Immanuel Kant swept in government, the economy, and to the divine. While on the one hand, Kant had given ultimate responsibility for the universe to the individual, since he had effected a final divorce between reason and revelation, between individual intellect and the Gnostic transmission of divine knowledge through extrasensory or extra-individual means, or more precisely, between individuals and the appointed heads of state churches who claim the power of secret revelation, he had also placed established religion in its correct light as an institution that sought to divide the individual from his responsibility and self-reliance in improving the human spirit as an individual instead of a congregation. In so doing, he had sought an individualistic and anarchic picture of human reason. Pure intellect, pure criticism, pure mind, as a theoretical stance. By sketching out the groundwork for the organon, the logical apparatus of mind, he had eliminated the possibility of an outside organon in society, a social mind, a hive mind, a government mind, a culture mind, or the God mind of religious creeds. In Germany, the disparate states of the nation were divided between rival church establishments, much like colonial American society was divided regionally by religious establishments in each colony and much like six-state churches remained active on the state level after the ratification of the Constitution. But whereas America underwent a disestablishment process due to the shift of religion into the free market as a byproduct of its anti-tax movements, Germany had traditionally been embroiled in bloody and internecine religious conflicts, and the French Revolution had scared the conservative establishmentarians into cleaving to religious centralization instead of market decentralization in order to stave off the levels of secular insanity and Jacobinism that had arisen in France in the years after the revolution. Kant's idea of enlightenment removed intermediaries from their privileged place between the individual and the divine, whether he wished his philosophy to effect this divorce or not. If institutional religion charged itself with interpreting the correct rites and readings of scripture and orthodoxy, and if the individual were not charged with examining reality for himself by that institution, but instead were charged with accepting another man's interpretation of God and godliness, then institutional religion was a usurper of reason, and not a guide. For the rules of logic and individualism applied not only to the congregation, but also to the high priest of divine revelation. It was not without reason that Kant was often viewed as a dangerous philosopher His Anarchy of Reason was one of the gravest threats to established dogma in the history of Western civilization. As a young acolyte of the critical philosophy, Fichte had attempted to apply the Kantian method of criticism to divine revelation in his Attempt at a Critique of All Revelation in 1792. His goal was not to deny that there is such a thing as divine revelation but to show that through the critical philosophy first derived by Kant, that there only might be revelation, not that there is revelation de facto. He sketched out the groundwork for limitation upon the whole field of revealed religion, and in doing so, fixed a bound God to moral rules. Hence, there could never be something revealed in religion as something higher than the moral rule of the categorical imperative. In his Metaphysics of Morals, Kant had deduced a moral law through reason as follows. Act only according to a moral rule whereby you could, at the same time, will that this moral rule should be universal. This was, in effect, the golden rule, treat others as you wish to be treated, but applied more broadly, more universally, in reason, justified by logic. By this measure, for example, one could not wish that theft become a universal rule. For if one wishes to steal from others, yet wishes others to steal from oneself, as in state socialism, then nobody could ever wish that theft would become the universal norm. At some point, one's sole aim would be to obtain property for the prolongation of the theft. But one could not will oneself to desire the retention of property, and would prefer to give that property away, and yet, the desire to give that property away would make the theft no longer theft in the end. The very notion of theft means that one does not wish others to take one's property, otherwise the act would not be called theft. It would be voluntary sharing. As soon as the thief obtained his loot, he would have to will that some other thief should steal that loot, and if he wished that others should steal his loot, He could never act in accordance with the rule by means of reason because he could never will that he should, as an individual, be in possession of property or come into the possession of property that he wished others to steal from him. This would cripple the need and desire to work, to labor for the acquisition of resources, and would thence condemn the looter, the thief, and the idealist to starvation. To steal is to appropriate a good or a resource and to appropriate a good or a resource would touch off the moral rule of theft all over again. This is particularly why all socialist dogmas are anti-property at root. They wish to imagine the way the thing that makes the whole philosophy falter and collapse at its first toddler's step. By abolishing property from the discussion through force, although they do not abolish it thereby from reality or the mind, they hope to claim a first victory in the cause. If God were bound to a categorical imperative, Fichte reasoned by extension, then no divine revelation could ever reveal something that would conflict with the categorical imperative and the reason of humankind. God was justified by reason. Revelation and divine reward were not a means of promising recompense for something in conflict with individual moral duty. Kant was impressed with Fichte's applications of critical philosophy but the intellectual honeymoon Fichte enjoyed would not last long. As international sentiment turned against the French Revolution in the 1790s, after the secularization, pogroms, and military upheavals turned the revolution into a massacre, a change in popular sentiment, perhaps best exemplified by the correspondence of argumentation between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke, Fichte came to be regarded as a Germanic Jacobin and a dangerous social usurper. As one chronicler of observed, The tracts which the French Revolution
0: inspired Fichte to write at this time, and which established the rights of the people on the basis of the inherent moral freedom of man, increased his fame. But at the same time they caused moderate and conservative men to regard him as a radical and dangerous teacher. In spite of this, however, he was called to succeed Reinhold as professor of philosophy at Jena in 1794. Here he won immediate success as a lecturer, owing undoubtedly in great measure to the vigor of his thought and to his moral intensity and practical earnestness. His enemies, however, especially the bigoted supporters of the traditional constitution and of the established forms of religion, never ceased trying to undermine his position and to secure his removal. They first complained that the course of general moral lectures which he gave on Sunday mornings was an attempt to overthrow Christianity and to introduce the worship of reason in its stead. But, meeting with no success, they then attempted to turn to his disadvantage the efforts which Fichte was making to suppress the students' associations. Throughout these negotiations, Fichte, who saw that these associations were productive of much harm, was animated solely by the desire to develop and cultivate the moral and intellectual powers of his pupils. Though again unsuccessful, His enemies did not cease their attacks, and were at last victorious.
1: One of the problems that Fichte made for himself as a kind of godfather of postmodernism, a philosophical problem at root with wide-ranging social consequences, was evident in that he wished to push Kant's critical philosophy beyond its limits. Kant had drawn the line between objects of the senses and the apparatus of the mind, That is, he divided the senses through which we perceive our ideas about objects without ever quite getting to the thing in itself from the form of our knowledge of outside objects. Knowledge has a time-invariant, constrained form. The form is timeless. It is invariant. It operates in the same way at all times and always entails the same underlying assumptions. But as for the actions of the mind creating facts and assertions, it is neither pure idea, nor pure sense. The subject-knower and the object, the known means and ends, are correlative things. While it was true that the objective world could not exist without a knowing subject, a logical mind, in form, with reason as its function, one could not then say that objects exist only in the mind. For Fichte, this was mostly a one-way street. Things in themselves did not exist, much as in materialist dogma there is no mind, but only matter in the things in themselves. Fichte believed that Kant had not gone far enough in his idealism, that because objects could not exist without a subject, that therefore objects only existed in the subject. That Kant's very proposal of a thing in itself was a false distinction, since such a thing in itself was without reality in the mind. That it was thus unknowable and unreal. In this transition he lost sight of the constraints of knowledge and reason. Arthur Schopenhauer was a savvy critic of Fichte's missteps. The philosophy of Fichte, Schopenhauer argued, is therefore of interest to us only as
0: the real opposite of the old and original materialism. Fichte,
1: Schopenhauer argued, had made the inverse error of the object as mind Lockeans by not noting the relative and coexistent necessity of mind and matter with sufficient constraints. We do not live only in idea, but also in a world in which the mind has constraints. For example, logic, which is formal and not practical, is not sufficient to tell us what to think, but only to steer us away from errors and inconsistencies. The human mind is constrained by range and the inborn properties of matter, for the human mind cannot discover, but through delusion or a mistake, either in attributing causation or determining the object's suitability for human ends, something in the object that is not actually in the object. The mind is not, however, the final determinant of matter, but only of its conceptualization. Of Materialism and Fichte, Schopenhauer wrote,
0: Materialism was the most consistent system starting from the object, as Fichte's system was the most consistent starting from the subject. Materialism overlooked the fact that, with the simplest object, it had at once posited the subject as well. So Fichte, too, overlooked the fact that with the subject, let him give it whatever title he likes, he posited the object, since no subject is thinkable without object. He also overlooked the fact that all deduction a priori, indeed, all demonstration in general, rest on a necessity and that all necessity is based simply and solely on the principle of sufficient reason, since to be necessary and to follow from a given ground or reason are convertible terms. But the principle of sufficient reason is nothing but the universal form of the object as such. Hence, it presupposes the object, but is not valid before and outside it. It can first produce the object, and cause it to appear in accordance with its legislative force. Therefore, generally speaking starting from the subject has in common with starting from the object the same defect as explained above, namely, that it assumes in advance what it professes to deduce, that is to say, the necessary correlative of its point of departure.
1: What followed from these fundamental epistemological errors was the famous atheism controversy in which Fichte, who had identified the moral world order with God, was deemed a dangerous atheist such was a terrible charge to have laid at one's feet, where church and state were not effectively separated. This tale itself, which will be featured later this year on the Culture and Anarchy podcast's second installment of The Shadow of All Doubts, led to Fichte's dismissal from his position at the university. Seeking safety, or perhaps just a fresh start, Fichte removed himself to Berlin to start his career all over again with the school of romantic idealists, amongst whom counted Schelling the other figurehead of German idealism apart from Kant and Fichte. It was a contentious new start for the young German idealist, for Fichte was a man of absolute principles and a disagreeable temperament, who suffered no slackness from others, and when a proposal was circulated for the founding of a new university in Berlin, Fichte delivered his fourteen addresses to the German nation before an elite crowd, which he hoped would provide a platform upon which the national foundation of a specifically German education might arise. These addresses, which are often touted as one of the first essays upon the modern European notion of nationalism, were based on a select set of defining characteristics, which were sufficient to demarcate a nation. These addresses did not arise in a vacuum, however. The French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, had begun his forays into Prussia in 1806, and by the end of the year he had taken Berlin. Fichte fled from the city during this period of turmoil, which must have been more than a little humiliating to his ideals and his experience, for the totalitarian and constructivist rationalism of the French Revolution, along with its currency collapse at the end of the monarchy, had thrown French society into upheaval and more than a decade of pointless wars. None of this happened in a vacuum either. The English had provoked conflict after conflict with the French in order to keep its own empire secure, and especially after the French had aided American independence. And the French had retaliated time and time again. The two juggernauts of Western Europe had anticipated each other's moves by destroying alliances and forging temporary wars of convenience throughout a decade of war. Napoleon had, in part, secured some social stability for France, but in doing so he had pushed the armies of France over the borders of her enemies and occupied foreign territory as a conqueror. Perhaps Fichte must have reflected in self-doubt on more than one occasion. His critics had been correct when they had linked him to the disastrous effects of continental constructivist rationalism, which believed that Utopia might form a plan for the state's organization. In August 1807, Fichte returned to an occupied Berlin to find his country under the yoke of Napoleonic rule, and the restless spirit of revolution stirred in him as he found, as is the way with human nature, that an excessive reason beyond culture, which had resulted in the usurpation of his native culture with a foreign despot's culture, was intolerable. Nothing so stirs the anarchic human breast to revolt as occupation and misrule, For the self-determination of peoples is something at the heart of rational society, rational economy, and quasi-rational politics, insofar as politics can be something rational. Reason, as the spirit of anarchy, is always secessionist in temper. It is always extraction, always deduction, always building up towards an individual, and away from masses and abstract classes. It is the universal philosophy of the specimen, not the species, and during the large-scale movements of international wars, with their occupations, devastations, destructions, ebbs and flows, reason seeks secession from disorder. Perhaps this is what tuned Fichte's his intellect and set it towards a plan for a new foundation of Germanic thought, one not tainted by the French Revolution that had betrayed his ideals, and perhaps the French philosophes as well. If the future was to be the utopia of the individual, the anarchic mind of reason then surely it was to be found in the people of Germany and the home of idealism. Fichte's addresses to the German nation escaped the censure of the French occupiers of Berlin, despite the nationalism that found its voice in Fichte's words. Perhaps it sounded too foreign to the Jacobinical Universalists who were busy totalitarianizing the world into Liberté, Egalité, and Fraternité. Perhaps Fichte's words were innocuous because Fichte himself, a small German figure, was a mere ant in a giant Napoleonic colony. But whatever the case is, Fichte was mounting a plan for future revolution by means of a plan for a native education, based on German idealism. This was intellectual dynamite, no doubt for the concept of a national identity was being wedded with the idealist philosophy of self-reliance, self-determination, duty, change, and industry. Worse yet, with Fichte's methodological errors in play, this was a world of mind in which the mind's conditioning of reality was not constrained by outside conditions, other causes and effects that fixed logic in place and recognized the limits of subjective knowledge. Amongst the many sciences that thus lay outside a Fichte system was the theoretical sphere of economics. Fichte was, in envisioning a closed autistic commercial state, a socialist self-sufficient state with no outside trade, one of the first totalitarian autarchists. Max Weber, who saw in the rise of capitalism the fingerprints of the Protestant work ethic, could have as easily spied in the nationalist drive the overweening constructivism of German idealism, which wedded industry to an idyllic bureaucracy. And though Fichte's addresses did not stir up popular sentiment, they did have an effect upon the cultured classes of Germany. He had aimed them at the common folk, but the addresses did not have a noticeable effect. The ideas contained therein have been linked, whether justly or in overextension, with the outbreak of the War of Liberation in 1813, when six German states rose up against their French overlords and, in conjunction with the Duke of Wellington's maneuvers at Waterloo, forced Napoleon into defeat and ended the French occupation of Germany. That success, it is sometimes asserted, formed the basis for the renewal of the German state and the unification of the country. Fichte's addresses were an attempt to formulate, out of the disparate Germanic states, a feeling of national identity sufficient to demarcate his native region of birth, its culture and its supposed race, from the occupying forces of Napoleon as well as its foreign culture, and by extension, its language. In doing so, Fichte utilized German idealism to join together a people separated by denominational differences and institutional squabbles. He wanted to find the common substrate of Germany itself within its people, knowing that underneath it all was the human nature, the organon, that Kant had discovered in his probing critical philosophy. He utilized his understanding of idealism's real target, which is the theoretical framework for human nature and human reason, to grant to the German people the honor of best exemplifying human nature and human reason. German nature, as a result, became the pinnacle of human society and development, whereas before Germany had been but the collection of states and principalities with tenuous and shifting alliances. This nature, this German idea, was then to serve as a model for a national education of the German people, expanding the Prussian model for education outside of Prussia and across the racial substrate of the newly conceptualized nation, as Fichte then envisioned the potential for a common cause. Fichte rooted these national characteristics in the concepts and categories of race, ethnic solidarity, heredity, art, language, custom, and prejudice. As one can well imagine, in the aftermath of World War II, and nearly a century of backwards-looking philosophical reflection, many is the thinker that has linked Fichte's addresses to the swell of nationalism that would eventually be responsible for everything leading up to the Nationalist Socialists and the Holocaust. This is an unfortunate characterization resulting from historical circumstance, and it tends to arise whenever any sense of German nationalism and idealism is examined in history. More's the pity that this tendency has led to very shallow analysis of the ideas that Fichte canvassed in his orations. In the evolution of the concept of a nation, Fichte provides one of the first building-up plans for the modern status mindset. And it is with this understanding that we here endeavor to examine his ideas within the world of identitarian conflicts that arose out of the French Revolution, which pitted the anarchic mind of human reason against the cultural prejudices of conservatism, and wound up trying to engineer a mass movement based on the establishment of reason as a governing policy in society, but to the detriment of individualism where America succeeded prior to the Civil War and the destruction of its own constitution, was in the state-by-state shift of religious institutions into the untaxed marketplace in accordance with the federal prescription of laissez-faire. There was never a central plan, but only a gradualist plan for religious voluntarism. There is a reason to examine Fichte's arguments for more than historical interest. Fischer was codifying, on a large scale, what before had been the expression of a tribal impulse, now transformed into a national identity and a means of distribution, a nationalized education market. His platform was interested in justifying a form of identity politics that was in reaction to foreign occupation. Similar nationalisms had arisen in the preceding generation both in America and Europe, where the English Empire had split in twain amongst a parent culture and its bastard American children, the disenfranchised brats of a crumbling world empire who had secured liberty from the clutches of its imperious parents. In the future, the nationalism that arose would no longer be linked to military occupation and specific outrages like poll taxes, direct taxes, or tea taxes, but to the challenges to culture that would arise through trade, commerce, exchange, and the free mobility of labor, immigration and emigration. The new outrages were universal and monolithic. They required nothing less than the changing out of the old gods, the titans, with a new class of godly equalitarians in the service of cosmic justice. The cost of culture would be mitigated by gains in wealth and economy, but with the rise of the welfare state in the post-World War II era, and the attempt, most disastrously, by the 20th century's demographic engineers to support the welfare state with a growing tax base as it became more unwieldy, we are beginning to see the rise of nationalism in a different sense than even in the past. Whereas Fichte could actually point to a military dictator exercising a foreign influence, we can only point at democratic governments, the demographic engineers, to each other, and the wealth redistribution government handout fueled drive for taxpayer-subsidized immigration and refugeeism. It is a known fact that any population, if it is to remain stable, must maintain at the very least an average of a two-child home. For every person in a nation, at least one child must survive in order to prevent the decline in number from the population's equilibrium. In a welfare state, this means that in order to maintain, even though it was a flawed plan from the start and could not be maintained economically, the current level of benefits from taxpayers to tax consumers, from the young to the elderly, there must be a growing population base to sustain the machine. If the birth rate were to decline below the two-child household on average, then the welfare state would have to cut benefits to payees and jack up taxes on a dwindling population base with an insufficient replacement rate. Europe, for one, has tried to solve this problem by bringing in refugees and immigrants en masse, in numbers that boggle the mind. Worse yet, it has done so at the taxpayer's expense, and with ample welfare support for the incoming generation of future Europeans who are not becoming more European in outlook. But given the demographics of the replacements... Somali, Libyan, Afghani, Iraqi, Syrian, North African, and so on, it is by no means clear that the welfare state is importing its future taxpayers and not its future tyrants. The birth rate decline, mixed with the demographic change and the influx of Muslim populations, will be the story of the coming generation. And if the present climate of nationalism is to give us a hint at what is to come, we are likely to see a splintering of nationalism along altogether new lines. We thought we lived in a secular age, but we're seeing again the rise of intolerant faith. Multiculturalism has failed, and nationalism is rising. We cannot predict its path, but we must be prepared to face down its excesses where the European state seems unwilling to address its course with a critical eye and where opposition to demographic replacement and cultural annihilation is actively libeled as racist, xenophobic, and intolerant. Rational conversation has all but ended, and few are the divided parties who can brook peaceful argument. All this in a region where opinion polls regularly show that the ideals of each nation's figureheads are at odds with the vast majority of the people who are ruled by those lawmakers and international bureaucracies. Already, the large-scale influx of more productive Muslim birth rates and importation of a foreign culture with some very intolerant and anti-Western elements may threaten the long-run vitality of Western European civilization. It is for this reason that it is worth revisiting the arguments reared by nationalism's first proponents. For if history will teach us one overarching lesson, It is that the same old ideas get rehashed, always tailored for the new generation by the particular challenges that it faces. Fichte very much had a definition for his nation, though perhaps not a theory of the nation. His model could never be universalized, though it managed to have a very particular utility for its time and place. The century that succeeded his addresses would repeatedly show how prescient, even if not justified by reason, his hypotheses were for they arose everywhere, in almost every nation, on every continent, and now rise to challenge free markets and catalactics with renewed vigor. Already we have seen the burgeoning brainwashing of the old Prussian education model at work, now fully in service to the new Jacobinical ideas. Anti-economic illogic, political correctness, cultural relativism, gender dysphoria, intersectional victimology, racial disharmonization, original sin theories of American history, and so on. Fichte's nationalistic plan for education has succeeded far beyond his aims, for the method was preserved in Europe and America by allying with various socialist and progressive sectarian philosophies, even though his specific plan, pursuant to World War II, was dashed for Germany. The very existence of the American Department of Education is evidence that the national drive for the restriction of thought, away from individual secession and rote form and old usage, holds dangerous potential for America's near future if the states do not secede from that influence. As it stands today, the states have become addicts of federal funding and so remain thrilled to the centralizing dogmas of the common core of ideas drummed up by the prevailing bureaucratic authorities. And while the philosophy of Fichte is dead, by and large, it has prevailed. Friedrich a. Hayek argued that catalaxy was the foundation for what was worth preserving in civilization, that it was, in fact, at the base of the very idea that Western civilization was a positive thing. In the marketplace, win win negotiations and free trade as opposed to ceaseless war, Napoleonic campaigns, strife, conflict, and tariffs, were the means best suited to the preservation of society. Through voluntary exchange, or catalactic exchange, one turned one's enemies into one's friends without requiring a pact from some governing body. One could, by exchange, effect change over time in equilibrium with each market participant's Decisions to consume goods or to refrain from accessible consumption and enjoyment. A century of Keynesianism and welfare statism has pushed the accelerator of change to the very floor. The welfare statists wished to leapfrog over the equilibrium of the marketplace in order to speed up the path to superabundance. But in the process, they jammed the gears and broke the throttle. We must enter our own age with full recognition of the consequences that follow from such state policies. We cannot afford to be deluded by the utopianism of the engineers as we career down this road full tilt. When this drama plays out, it will play out on all social fronts. It is a drama that will affect our culture, our freedom, our equality, our institutions, our markets, our families, and our very lives. We shall hear many appeals to history, to our historical memory, as if the past were something that could rise up to meet us as a savior. But our history has brought us to the present dilemma. We had better be prepared to meet the future with eyes wide open. from Addresses to the German Nation by Johann Gottlieb Fichte First Address Introduction and General Survey The addresses which I now commence I have announced as a continuation of the lectures which I gave three winters ago in this place and which were published under the title Characteristics of the Present Age. In those lectures, I showed that our own age was set in a third great epoch of time. An epoch which had, as the motive of all its vital activities and impulses, mere material self-seeking. That this age could comprehend and understand itself completely, only by recognizing that as the sole possible motive. And finally, that by this clear perception of its own nature, it was becoming deeply rooted and immovably fixed, in this, its natural state of existence. Time is taking giant strides with us more than with any other age since the history of the world began. At some point within the three years that have gone by since my interpretation of the present age, that epoch has come to an end. At some point, self-seeking has destroyed itself, because by its own complete development it has lost itself, and the independence of that self. And since it would not voluntarily set itself any other aim but self, an external power has forced upon it another and a foreign purpose. He who has once undertaken to interpret his own age must make his interpretation keep pace with the progress of that age, if progress there be. It is, therefore, my duty to acknowledge as past what has ceased to be the present before the same audience to whom I characterized it as the present. Whatever has lost its independence has at the same time lost its power to influence the course of events and to determine these events by its own will. If it remain in this state, its age, and itself with the age, are conditioned in their development by that alien power which governs its fate. From now onwards it has no longer any time of its own, but counts its years by the events and epochs of alien nations and kingdoms. From this state in which all of its past world is removed from its independent influence, and in its present world only the merit of obedience remains to it, it could raise itself only on condition that the new world should arise for it, the creation of which would begin, and its development fill, a new epoch of its own in history but since it has once fallen under alien power, this new world must be so constituted that it remains unperceived by that power, that it does not in any way arouse its jealousy, nay, more, that the alien power itself is induced by its own interest to put no obstacle in the way of the formation of such a world. Now, if, for a race which has lost its former self, its former age and world, such a world should be created as the means of producing a new self and a new age, a thorough interpretation of such a possible age would have to give an account of the world thus created. Now, for my part, I maintain that there is such a world, and it is the aim of these addresses to show you its existence and its true owner, to bring before your eyes a living picture of it, and to indicate the means of creating it. In this sense, therefore, these addresses will be a continuation of the lectures previously given on the then-existing age because they will reveal the new era which can and must directly follow the destruction of the kingdom of self-seeking by an alien power. But before I begin this task, I must ask you to assume the following points so that they never escape your memory and to agree with me upon them wherever and in so far as this is necessary. A. I speak for Germans simply, of Germans simply, not recognizing, but setting aside completely and rejecting, all the dissociating distinctions which for centuries unhappy events have caused in this single nation. You, gentlemen, are indeed to my outward eye the first and immediate representatives who bring before my mind the beloved national characteristics and are the visible spark at which the flame of my address is kindled. But my spirit gathers round it the educated part of the whole German nation, from all the lands in which they are scattered. It thinks of and considers our common position and relations. It longs that part of the living force, with which these addresses may chance to grip you, may also remain in and breathe from the dumb printed page, which alone will come to the eyes of the absent, and may, in all places, kindle German hearts to decision and action. Only of Germans, and simply for Germans, I said. In due course, we shall show that any other mark of unity or any other national bond either never had the truth and meaning, or, if it had, that owing to our present position, these bonds of union have been destroyed and torn from us, and can never recur. It is only by means of the common characteristic of being German. That we can avert the downfall of our nation which is threatened by its fusion with foreign peoples and win back again in individuality that is self-supporting and quite incapable of any dependence upon others. With our perception of the truth of this statement, its apparent conflict, feared now perhaps by many, with other duties and with matters that are considered sacred, will completely vanish. Therefore, as I speak only of Germans in general. I shall proclaim that many things concern us which do not apply in the first instance to those assembled here, just as I shall pronounce as the concern of all Germans other things which apply in the first place only to us. In the spirit of which these addresses are the expression, I perceive that organic unity in which, in which no member regards the fate of another as the fate of a stranger. I behold that unity, which shall and must arise if we are not to perish altogether, already achieved, completed, and existing. B. I assume as hearers, not such Germans as are in their whole nature completely given over to a feeling of pain at the loss that they have suffered, who take comfort in this pain, luxuriate in their disconsolate grief and think thereby to compromise with the call that summons them to action. But I assume such Germans as have already risen, or are at least capable of rising, above this justifiable pain to clear thought and meditation. I know that pain. I have felt it as much as anyone. I respect it. Apathy. Apathy which is satisfied if it find meat and drink and be not subjected to bodily pain, and for which honor, freedom, and independence are empty names, is incapable of it. Pain, however, exists merely to spur us on to reflection, decision, and action. If it fails in this ultimate purpose, it robs us of reflection and of all our remaining powers, and so completes our misery while, moreover, as witness to our sloth and cowardice, it affords the visible proof that we deserve our misery. But I do not in the least intend to lift you above this pain by holding out hopes of any help which will come to you from outside, and by indicating all kinds of possible events and changes which time may perchance bring about. For even if this attitude of mind, which prefers to roam in the shifting world of possibilities rather than to stick to what must be done, and would rather owe its salvation to blind chance than to itself, did not already in itself afford evidence, as it really does, of the most criminal levity and of the deepest self-contempt, yet all hopes and indications of this kind have absolutely no application to our position. Strict proof can— and in due course will, be given that no man and no God and not one of all the events that are within the bounds of possibility can help us, but that we alone must help ourselves if help is to come to us. Rather shall I try to lift you above that pain by clear perception of our position, of our yet remaining strength, and of the means of our salvation. For that purpose I shall, it is true, demand of you a certain amount of reflection, some spontaneous activity, and some sacrifice, and reckon, therefore, on hearers of whom so much may be expected. The demands I make, however, are on the whole easy, and presuppose no greater amount of strength than one may, I think, expect of our age. As for the danger? There is absolutely none. C. Since I intend to give the Germans, as such, a clear view of their present position, I shall assume as hearers, such as are disposed to see things of this sort, with their own eyes, and by no means such as find it easier in their consideration of these matters to have foisted upon them a strange and foreign eyeglass, which is either deliberately intended to deceive, or never properly suits a German eye, because it has a different angle of vision and is not fine enough. Moreover, I presuppose that such hearers, when looking at these things with their own eyes, will have the courage to look honestly at what does exist, and to admit candidly to themselves what they see, and that they either have conquered already, or at least are capable of conquering, the tendency, frequently manifested, to deceive oneself concerning one's own affairs, and to present to the mind a less displeasing picture of them than is consistent with the truth." this tendency is a cowardly flight from one's own thoughts. And it is a childish attitude of mind which seems to believe that, if only it does not see its misery, or at least does not admit that it sees it, this misery will thereby be removed in reality, even as it is removed in thought. On the other hand, it is manly courage to look evil full in the face, to compel it to make a stand, to scrutinize it calmly coolly, and freely, and to resolve it into its component parts. Moreover, by this clear perception alone, is it possible to master evil and to proceed with sure step in the fight against it. For the man who sees the whole in each part always knows where he stands, and is sure of his ground by reason of the insight he has once gained. Whereas another man, lacking sure clue or definite certainty, gropes blindly in a dream. Why, then, should we be afraid of this clear perception? Evil does not become less through ignorance, nor increase through knowledge. Indeed, it is only by that latter that it can be cured. But the question of blame shall not be raised here. Let sloth and self-seeking be censured with bitter reprimand, with biting sarcasm and cutting scorn and let them be provoked, if to nothing better, at least to bitter hatred of him who gives the reminder, such hatred is at any rate a powerful impulse. Let this be done, so long as the inevitable result, the evil, is not fully accomplished, and so long as salvation or mitigation shall still be expected from any improvement. But, When this evil is so complete that we are deprived of even the possibility of sinning again in the same way, it is useless and looks like malicious joy to continue to rail against a sin that can no longer be committed. The consideration immediately drops out of the sphere of ethics into that of history, for which freedom is ended, and which regards an event as the inevitable consequence of what has gone before. For our addresses there remains no other view of the present than this last, and we shall therefore never adopt any other. This attitude of mind, therefore, that we consider ourselves simply Germans, that we not be held captive even by pain itself, that we wish to see the truth and have the courage to look it in the face, I presuppose and reckon upon every word that I shall say. If, therefore, anyone should bring another attitude of mind to this meeting. He would have to attribute solely to himself the unpleasant feelings which might be caused him here. Let this then be said once for all, and finished with. I proceed now to my other task, namely, to put before you in a general survey the contents of all the addresses that are to follow. At some point I said at the beginning of my address, Self-seeking has destroyed itself by its own complete development, because thereby it has lost itself and the power of fixing its aims independently. This destruction of self-seeking, now accomplished, constitutes both that progress of the age which I have mentioned, and the completely new event which, in my opinion, has made a continuation of my previous description of that age both possible and necessary. This destruction would, therefore, be our real present, which our new life and a new world, the existence of which I likewise maintained, would have to be directly linked. It would, therefore, be also the proper starting point for my addresses, and I should have to show, above all, how and why such a destruction of self-seeking must result inevitably from its highest development. Self-seeking is most highly developed when, after it has first affected, with insignificant exceptions, the whole body of subjects. It thereupon masters the rulers and becomes their sole motive in life. In such a government, there arises first of all, outwardly, the neglect of all the ties by which its own safety is bound up with the safety of other states, and abandoning of the whole, of which it is the part, solely in order that it may not be roused from its slothful sleep, and the sad illusion of self-seeking that it has peace if only its own frontiers are not attacked. Then, inwardly, that feeble handling of the reins of state which calls itself in alien words humanity, liberality, and popularity, but which in German is more truly called slackness and unworthy conduct. When its masters, the rulers too, I said. A people can be completely corrupted, namely, self-seeking, for self-seeking is the root of all other corruption, and yet at the same time not only endure, but even outwardly accomplish splendid deeds, provided only that its government be not also corrupt. Indeed, the latter may even outwardly act treacherously, disloyally, and dishonorably, if only it have inwardly the courage to hold on to the reins of government with a strong hand, and to win for itself the greater fear. But where all the circumstances I have mentioned are combined, the commonwealth collapses at the first serious attack which is made upon it, and just as it first disloyally severed itself from the body of which it was a member, so now its members, who are restrained by no fear of it and are spurred on by the greater fear of a foreign power, cut themselves off from it with the same disloyalty and go each his own way. At this, the greater fear once more seizes those who now remain isolated. And where they gave sparingly and most unwillingly to the defender of their country, to the enemy they give abundantly and with a forced look of cheerfulness. Later on, the rulers, abandoned and betrayed on all sides, are compelled to purchase their further existence by submission and obedience to foreign schemes. And so those who, in battle for their country, threw away their arms— now learn to wield those same arms bravely under foreign colors against their mother country. Thus it comes about that self-seeking is destroyed by its own complete development, and upon those who would not voluntarily set themselves any other aim but self. Another aim is imposed by alien power. No nation which has sunk into this state of dependence can raise itself out of it by the means which have usually been adopted hitherto. Since resistance was useless to it when it was still in possession of all its powers, what can such resistance avail now that it has been deprived of the greater part of them? What might previously have availed, namely, if its government had held the reins strongly and firmly, is now no longer applicable, because these reins now only appear to rest in its hand, for this very hand is steered and guided by an alien hand. Such a nation can no longer depend upon itself. And it can rely as little on the conqueror, who would be just as thoughtless, just as cowardly and weak as that nation itself once was, if he did not hold fast to the advantages he has won, and exploit them in every way. Or if in course of time he were to ever become so thoughtless and cowardly, he would also perish like ourselves. But not to our advantage, for he would be the prey of another conqueror, and we, as a matter of course, the insignificant addition to that prey. If, however, a nation so fallen were to be able to save herself, it would have to be by means of something completely new and never previously employed, namely, by the creation of a totally new order of things. Let us see, therefore, what in the previously existing order of things was the reason why such an order had inevitably to come to an end, at some time or other, so that in the opposite of this reason for its downfall, we may find the new element which must be introduced into the age, in order that by its means the fallen nation may rise to a new life. On investigating this reason, we find that in every previous system of government the interest of the individual in the community was linked to his interest in himself by ties which at some point were so completely severed that his interest in the community absolutely ceased. These ties were those of fear and hope concerning the interests of the individual in relation to the fate of the community, both in the present and in some future life. The Enlightenment of the Understanding, with its purely material calculations, was the force which destroyed the connection established by religion between some future life and the present, and which, at the same time, conceived that such substitutes and supplements of the moral sense as love of fame and national honor were but illusory phantoms. It was the weakness of governments which removed the individual's fear for his own interests, even in this life, in so far as they depended upon his behavior towards the community, by frequently allowing neglect of duty to go unpunished. Similarly, it rendered the motive of hope ineffective by satisfying it frequently on quite different grounds and principles, without heed to services rendered to the community, without heed of services rendered to the community. Such were the ties, which at some point were completely severed. And it was this severance that caused the breakup of the commonwealth. Henceforth it matters not how industriously the conqueror may do that which he alone can do, namely, link up again and strengthen the latter part of the binding tie. Fear and hope for this present life. He alone will profit thereby, and not we at all. For so surely, as he perceives his advantage, will he linked to this renewed bond first and foremost only his own interests. Ours he will further only in so far as their preservation can serve as a means to his own ends. For a nation so ruined, fear and hope are henceforth completely destroyed, because control over them has now slipped from her hands, and because she herself indeed has to fear and hope but no one henceforth either fears her or hopes for aught from her. There remains nothing for her but to find an entirely different and new binding tie that is superior to fear and hope, in order to link up the welfare of her whole being with the self-interest of each of her members. Above the material motive of fear and hope, and bordering immediately upon it, there is the spiritual motive of moral approval or disapproval, and the higher feeling of pleasure or displeasure at the condition of ourselves and of others. The physical eye, when accustomed to cleanliness and order, is troubled and distressed, as though actually hurt, by a spot which indeed causes the body no actual injury, or by the sight of objects lying in chaotic confusion, while the eye accustomed to dirt and disorder is quite comfortable under such circumstances. So too, the inner mental eye of man can be so accustomed and trained. That the very sight of a muddled and disorderly, unworthy and dishonorable existence of its own or of a kindred race causes it intense pain, apart from anything there may be to fear or to hope from this for its own material welfare. This pain, apart again from material fear or hope, permits the possessor of such an eye no rest until he has removed, in so far as he can, this condition which displeases him, and has set in its place that which alone can please him. For the possessor of such an eye, because of this stimulating feeling of approval or disapproval, the welfare of his whole environment is bound up inextricably with the welfare of his own wider self, which is conscious of itself only as part of the whole, and can endure itself only when the whole is pleasing. To educate itself to possess such an eye will therefore... Be a sure means, and indeed the only means left, to a nation which has lost her independence and with it all influence over public fear and hope, of rising again into life from the destruction she has suffered, and of entrusting her national welfare, which, since her downfall, neither God nor man has heeded, with confidence to this new and higher feeling that has arisen. It follows, then, that the means of salvation which I promised to indicate consist in the fashioning, of an entirely new self, which may have existed before perhaps in individuals as an exception, but never as a universal and national self, and in the education of the nation whose former life has died out and become the supplement of an alien life, to a completely new life, which shall either remain her exclusive possession, or, if it must go forth from her to others, shall at least continue whole and undiminished in spite of infinite division. In a word, it is a total change of the existing system of education that I propose as the sole means of preserving the existence of the German nation. The children must be given a good education, has been said often enough, and has been repeated too often even in our own age. And it would be a paltry thing if we too, for our part, wished to do nothing but say it once again. Rather, it will be our duty insofar as we think we can accomplish something new, to investigate carefully and definitely what education hitherto has really lacked, and to suggest what completely new element a reform system must add to the training that has hitherto existed. After such an investigation, we must admit that the existing education does not fail to bring before the eyes of the pupils some sort of picture of a religious, moral, and law-abiding disposition, and of order in all things and good habits, and also that here and there it has faithfully exhorted them to copy such pictures in their lives. With very rare exceptions, however, and these were, moreover, not the outcome of this education, because otherwise they must have appeared, and that too as a rule, amongst all who receive such instruction, but were occasioned by other causes, and these with rare exceptions, I say. The pupils of this education have in general followed... Not those moral ideas and exhortations, but the impulses of self-seeking which developed in them spontaneously and without any assistance from education. This proves beyond dispute that the system may indeed have been able to fill the memory with some words and phrases and the cold and indifferent imagination with some faint and feeble pictures, but that it has never succeeded in making its picture of a moral world order so vivid that the pupil was filled with passionate love and yearning for that order, and with such glowing emotion as to incite him to realize it in his life, emotion before which self-seeking falls to the ground like withered leaves. It also proves this education to have been far from reaching right down to the roots of real impulse and action in life, and from training them, for these roots, neglected by this blind and impotent system, have everywhere developed wild as best they could, yielding good fruit in a few who were inspired by God, but evil fruit in the majority. It is for the present, then, quite sufficient to describe this education by these its results. And for our purpose, we can spare ourselves the wearisome task of analyzing the inner sap and fiber of a tree whose fruit is now fully ripe and lies fallen before the eyes of all, proclaiming most clearly and distinctly, the inner nature of its creator. Strictly speaking, according to this view, the present system has been by no means the art of educating men. This indeed it has not boasted of doing, but has very often frankly acknowledged its impotence by demanding to be given natural talent or genius as a condition of its success. Rather, does such an art remain to be discovered, and this discovery should be the real task of the new education. What was lacking in the old system, namely, an influence penetrating to the roots of vital impulse and action, the new education must supply. Accordingly, as the old system was able, at best, to train some part of man, so the new must train himself, and must make the training given, not, as hitherto, the pupil's possession, but an integral part of himself. Moreover, education restricted in this way has been brought to bear hitherto only on the very small minority of classes which are for this reason called educated, whereas the great majority, on whom, in very truth, the Commonwealth rest, the people, have been almost entirely neglected by this system and abandoned to blind chance. By means of the new education, we want to mold the Germans into a corporate body, which shall be stimulated and animated in all of its individual members by the same interest. If, by this means, we wanted, indeed, to mark off an educated class, which might perhaps be animated by the newly developed motive of moral approval from an uneducated one, then the latter would desert us and be lost to us. Because the motives of hope and fear, by which alone influence might be exercised over it, would work no longer with us, but against us. So there is nothing left for us but to justly apply the new system to every German without exception. So that it is not the education of a single class, but the education of the nation, simply and as such, and without accepting any of its individual members. And this, that is to say, in the training of man to take real pleasure in what is right, all distinction of classes which may in the future find a place in other branches of development, will be completely removed and vanish. In this way, there will grow up among us not popular education, but real German national education. I shall prove to you that a system of education such as we desire has actually been discovered and is already being practiced, so that we have nothing to do but to accept what is offered us as I promised you concerning the means of the salvation that I should propose. This demands undoubtedly no greater amount of energy than can reasonably be expected of our generation. To that promise I add another, namely, that so far as danger is concerned, there is none at all in our proposal, because the self-interest of that power that rules over us demands that the carrying out of such a proposal should be assisted rather than hindered. I consider it appropriate to speak my mind clearly on this point, at once in this first address. It is true that in ancient, as in modern times, the arts of corrupting and of morally degrading the conquered have very frequently been used with success as a means of ruling. By lying fictions, and by skillful confusion of ideas and of language, princes have been libeled to the people, and peoples to princes, in order that the two parties, because of their dissension, might the more surely be controlled. All the impulses of vanity and of self-interest have been cunningly aroused and fostered, so as to make the conquered contemptible, and thus to crush them with something like a good conscience. But it would be a fatal error to propose this method with us Germans. Apart from the tie of fear and hope, the coherence of that part of the outside world with which we have now come into contact is founded on the motives of honor and of national glory. The clear vision of the German, however, has long since come to the unshakable conviction that these are empty illusions, and that no injury or mutilation of the individual is healed by the glory of the whole nation. And we shall indeed, if a wider view of life be not brought before us, probably become dangerous preachers of this very natural and attractive doctrine. Without, therefore, taking to ourselves any new corruption— we are already, in our natural condition, a harmful prey. Only by carrying out the proposal that has been made can we become a wholesome one. Then the outside world, as certainly as it knows its own interest, will be guided by them and prefer to have us in the latter state rather than in the former. Now, in making this proposal, my address is directed especially towards the educated classes in Germany. I hope that it will be intelligible to them first. My proposal is first and foremost that they become the authors of this new creation, thereby, on the one hand, reconciling the world from their former influence, and, on the other, deserving its continuance in the future. We shall see in the course of these addresses that up to the present all human progress in the German nation has sprung from the people, and that to it, in the first instance, Great national affairs have always been brought, and by it have been cared for and furthered. Now, for the first time, therefore, it happens that the fundamental reconstruction of the nation is offered as a task to the educated classes, and if they were really to accept this offer, that, too, would happen for the first time. We shall find that these classes cannot calculate how long it will still remain in their power to place themselves at the head of this movement, since it is now almost prepared and ripe for proposal to the people, and is being practiced on individuals from among the people, and the people will soon be able to help themselves without any assistance from us. The result of this, for us, will simply be that the present educated classes and their descendants will become the people, while from among the present people, another more highly educated class will arise. Finally, it is the general aim of these addresses to bring courage and hope to the suffering, to proclaim joy in the midst of deep sorrow, to lead us gently and softly through the hour of deep affliction. This age is to me as a shade that stands weeping over its own corpse, from which it has been driven forth by a host of diseases, unable to tear its gaze from the form so beloved of old, and trying in despair every means to enter again the home of pestilence." Already it is true, the quickening breezes of that other world, which the departed soul has entered, have taken it unto themselves and are surrounding it with the warm breath of love. The whispering voices of its sisters greet it with joy and bid it welcome, and already in its depths it stirs and grows in all directions towards the more glorious form into which it shall develop. But as yet... The soul has no feeling for these breezes, no ear for these voices, or, if it had them, they have disappeared in sorrow for the loss of mortal form. For with its form, the soul thinks it has lost itself too. What is to be done with it? The dawn of a new world is already past its breaking. Already, it gilds the mountaintops and shadows forth the coming day. I wish, so far as in me lies... To catch the rays of this dawn and weave them into a mirror in which our grief-stricken age may see itself, so that it may believe in its own existence, may perceive its real self, and, as in prophetic vision, may see past by its development its coming forms. In the contemplation of this, the picture of its former life will doubtless sink and vanish. And the dead body may be borne to its resting place without undue lamenting. Thank you for listening to the culture and anarchy podcast i am proud to announce the upcoming publication of our second edition of the dial our periodic literary magazine which features works by poets in the liberty tradition the 2017 issue is available on our website at www.culture-anarchy.com and our next edition will be out in december print copies can be ordered through most online retailers we will be podcasting selections of poetry from the dial at the end of each month so if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. Coming up, we'll be featuring the first installments of The Shadow of All Doubts, a series that features the lesser-known but momentous conflicts between individuals and both state and church establishments throughout the history of Western civilization. Also, we will be wrapping up our publication schedule in the months to come to provide content beside our podcast presentations of my new book of philosophy, The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, which is now available in most online bookstores. We will be exploring more philosophy, history, and economics through literature of the great tradition. These shorter pieces will supplement our upcoming series, The Heist, Historical Sketches from the World's Gold Confiscation, and Neoconservatism, a Requiem. Thanks again for your support over the past year as the show has grown. And keep the social media mentions going to help spread the word about the best that has been thought and said. So please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. Lord Byron, wrote the English historian Thomas Babington Macaulay in his short book on the romantic poet Byron,
0: could exhibit only one man and only one woman, a man proud, moody, cynical, with defiance on his brow and misery in his heart, a scorner of his kind, implacable in revenge, yet capable of deep and strong affection. A woman, all softness and gentleness, loving to caress and to be caressed, but capable of being transformed by passion into a tigress. Even these two characters, his only two characters, he could not exhibit dramatically. He exhibited them in the manner not of Shakespeare, but of Clarendon. He analyzed them. He made them analyze themselves. But he did not make them show themselves.
1: In many ways, the typical Byronic hero was incapable of self-analysis, for he was searching for something with which to fill himself without first providing any substance. In one of Byron's most famous epics, *Child Harold's Pilgrimage, first published in the year 1812, the hero of the tale, Child Harold, has almost no character in and of himself. A distant narration which floats down to the reader from an Olympian height of detachment, accompanies the young man's international travels. Harold is entirely without purpose, without any great undertaking ahead of him. We do not get much of Harold's history except to see him as a young man lost in dissipation, sex, and cupidity. He has no sense of homeland, national identity, or purpose. And so he was, in a way a young Byron himself. And Byron often feared that Child Harold would be associated with Byron too immediately, so that it would seem as if the narration was in Byron's voice. And so, lacking any substance, Child Harold set sail across the sea in order to escape from his, as Fichte would have called it, self-seeking. Harold seeks something more than subjective satisfaction— as he quests for the essence of the eternal, Child Harold is the manifestation of a lost generation, and the very thing that Fichte sought to diagnose with his own theory of tragic romantic nationalism. For Fichte, it was only the fatherland and the individual's role in the fatherland that could cure the era of its Napoleonic malaise. Napoleon and with him the whole. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, coalition of the French Revolution, a disjoined, disorganized, and momentous war for the equality of all nations by means of conscription, taxation, economic destruction, and the obliteration of individual liberty, was destroying nations, peoples, and traditions. The cure for wholesale, jacobinical universalism was, Fichte concluded, a smaller universalism of nations divided into races. This same class theory of liberty was to have a lasting influence upon 19th century philosophy all throughout Europe, the drive for national identity, self-determination of classes and not of individuals, and romantic collectivism. The sickness of social universalism was met by local reaction to the obliteration of traditional institutions. In a way, All romantic worldviews require, first, a lost generation. Without that sense of tragic loss, or the deep-down nihilistic, sensuous, and despairing recognition of the emptiness of life, there can be no movement in the name of restoration, be it spiritual, political, nationalistic, constitutional, or, as the sublimation of tragic romanticism, outright fascism. While Child Harold is the anti antihero because he embodies a lost and wasted generation, his detached narrative voice is something altogether different from that antihero. The narrator's voice floats above nations, beyond the temporary rise and fall of tyrants and tyrannies, and so adds something more wizened by the international experience of man throughout time. Neither nationalistic nor universalist, the narrator's traverses throughout the European world, across continents and peninsulas smoldering under the oppression of Napoleon's armies, captures the cultural particularization that characterizes each region of the world, revolving between the romantic fire for rebellion and restoration and the despairing, jaded spirit of metastasizing war fatigue. As such, Child Harold's pilgrimage provides us with a pair of spectacles through which we might perfectly view the spirit of the age in which nationalism demarcated the course of European fortunes for the next two centuries. And in the first canto of Byron's poem, we see exactly what it is that Fichte feared a nation would become if it were lost in the moral depravity of excess, liberality, libertinism, market society, individualism, and, worst of all, it's self-seeking. The child leaves his ancestral home with two pathetic and empty words. Good night. Having tasted the fullest offerings of pleasure and satiety, he seeks his fortune abroad. And there, he discovers an uninviting world still smoking from the onslaught of illiberalism, the hungry fires of international war, conservative counter-revolution, the retrenchment of the ancien regime, conscription, and tyrannical oppression. From Child Harold's Pilgrimage, a romance, written in the year 1813, Kento the First. One, O thou in Hellas deemed of heavenly birth, Muse, formed or fabled at the minstrel's will. Since shamed full oft by later liars on earth, Mine dares not call thee from thy sacred hill. Yet there I've wandered by the vaunted rill, yes, Side o'er Delphi's long-deserted shrine, Where, save that feeble fountain, all is still. Nor mot my shell awake the weary nine To grace so plain a tale, this lowly lay of mine. 2. "'Wilom, in Albion's isle, there dwelt a youth, "'who nay in virtue's ways did take delight, "'but spent his days in riot, most uncouth, "'and vexed with mirth the drowsy ear of night. Ami, ah, me! "'In sooth he was a shameless wight, "'sore given to revel in ungodly glee. "'Few earthly things found favor in his sight, "'save concubines and carnal company, "'and flaunting with sailors of high and low degree.' Three. CHILD HERALD WAS HE HEIGHT, BUT WHENCE HIS NAME, AND LINEAGE LONG, IT SUITS ME NOT TO SAY. SUFFICE IT, THAT PERCHANCE THEY WERE OF FAME, AND HAD BEEN GLORIOUS IN ANOTHER DAY. BUT ONE SAD lozelle SOILS A NAME FOR I, HOWEVER MIGHTY IN THE OLDEN TIME. NOR ALL THE HERALDS RAKE FROM COFFINED CLAY, NOR FLORID PROSE, NOR HONEYED LIES OF RHYME, can blazon evil deeds, or consecrate a crime. 4. Child Harold basked him in the nude-tide sun, disporting there like any other flea. Nor deemed before his little day was done, one blast might chill him into misery. But long ere scarce a third of his passed by, worse than adversity the child befell, he felt the fullness of satiety, then loathed he in his native land to dwell, Which seemed to him more lone than Eremite's sad cell. 5. For he, through sin's long labyrinth had run, Nor made atonement when he did amiss, Had sighed to many, though he loved but one, And that loved one, alas, could ne'er be his. Ah, happy she, to escape from him Whose kiss had been pollution to aught so chaste, who soon had left her charms for vulgar bliss, and spoiled her goodly lands to gild his waste, nor calm domestic peace had ever deigned to taste. 6. And now child Harold was sore sick at heart, and from his fellow Bacchanals would flee. Tis said at times the sullen tear would start, but pride congealed the drop within his ease. Apart, he'd stalked in joyless reverie, and from his native land resolved to go and visit scorching climes beyond the sea. With pleasure drugged, he almost longed for woe, and even for change of scene, would seek the shades below. 7. The child departed from his father's hall. It was a vast and venerable pile. So old it seemed only not to fall, yet strength was pillared in each massy aisle. Monastic dome, condemned to uses vile, where superstition once had made her den. Now Paphian girls were known to sing and smile, and monks might deem their time was come again, if ancient tales say true, nor wrong these holy men. Eight. Yet oft-times in his maddest, mirthful mood, strange pangs would flash along child Harold's brow, as if the memory of some deadly feud or disappointed passion lurked below. But this none knew, nor happily cared to know. For his was not that open, artless soul that feels relief by bidding sorrow flow, nor sought he friend to counsel or condole. Whate'er his grief might be, which he could not control." 9. And none did love him, though to hall and bower he gathered revelers from far and near. He knew them flatterers of the festal hour, the heartless parasites of present cheer. Yea, none did love him, not his lemans dear, but pomp and power alone are woman's care, and where these are light, Eros finds a fair." Maidens, like moths, are ever caught by glare, And mammon wins his way where seraphs might despair. 10. Child Harold had a mother, not forgot, Though parting from that mother he did shun. A sister whom he loved, but saw her not Before his weary pilgrimage begun. If friends he had, he bade adieu to none. Yet deem not thence his breast a breast of steel. Ye who have known what tis to dote upon a few dear objects will in sadness feel such partings break the heart they fondly hope to yield. 11. His house, his home, his heritage, his lands, the laughing dames in whom he did delight, whose large blue eyes, fair locks, and snowy hands might shake the saintship of an anchorite, and long had fed his youthful appetite, his goblets brimmed with every costly wine, and all that mote to luxury invite. Without a sigh he left to cross the brine and traverse Paynim's shores and pass Earth's central line. Twelve. The sails were filled, and fair the light winds blew, as glad to waft him from his native home, and fast the white rocks faded from his view and soon were lost in circumambient foam. And then, it may be, of his wish to roam repented he. But in his bosom slept the silent thought, nor from his lips did come one word of wail, whilst others sate and wept. And to the reckless gale's unmanly moaning kept. Thirteen. But when the sun was sinking in the sea, he seized his harp, which he at times could string, and strike, albeit with untaught melody, which, when deemed he no strange ear was listening, and now his fingers o'er it he did fling, And tuned his farewell in the dim twilight. While flew the vessel on her snowy wing, And fleeting shores receded from his sight, Thus to the elements he poured his last good night. Stanza I Adieu, adieu, my native shore, Fades o'er the waters blue, The night winds sigh, the breakers roar, And shrieks the wild sea-mew. Yon sun that sets upon the sea, We follow in his flight. Farewell awhile to him and thee, My native land, good night. Stanza two. A few short hours, and he will rise To give the morrow birth. And I shall hail the main and skies, But not my mother earth. Deserted is my own good hall, Its hearth is desolate. Wild weeds are gathering on the wall. My dog howls at the gate. Stanza 3 Come hither, hither, my little page, Why dost thou weep and wail? Or dost thou dread the billow's rage, Or tremble at the gale? But dash the tear drop from thine eye, Our ship is swift and strong, Our fleetest falcon scarce can fly More merrily along. Stanza 4 Let winds be shrill, let waves roll high, I fear not wave nor wind,
0: Yet marvel not, sir child, that I am sorrowful in mind. For I have from my father gone, a mother whom I love, And have no friend save these alone, but thee and one above. Stanza five. My father blessed me fervently, yet did not much complain, But sorely will my mother sigh till I come back again.
1: Enough, enough, my little lad, such tears become thine eye. If I thy guiltless bosom had, Mine own would not be dry. Stanza 6 Come hither, hither, my staunch yeoman, Why dost thou look so pale? Or dost thou dread a French foe-man? Or shiver at the gale?
0: Deemst thou I tremble for my life? Sir child, I'm not so weak. But thinking on an absent wife Will blanch a faithful cheek.
1: Stanza 7
0: my spouse and boys dwell near thy hall, along the bordering lake. And when they on their father call, what answer shall she make?
1: Enough, enough, my yeoman good, thy grief let none gainsay. But I, who am of lighter mood, will laugh to flee away. Stanza 8 For who would trust the seeming sighs of wife and paramour? Fresh fares will dry the bright blue eyes we late saw streaming o'er. For pleasures past I do not grieve, nor perils gathering near. My greatest grief is that I leave no thing that claims a tear. Stanza 9 And now I'm in the world alone, upon the wide, wide sea. But why shall I for others groan, when none will sigh for me? Perchance my dog will whine in vain, till fed by stranger hands. But long ere I come back again, he'd tear me where he stands. Stands at 10. With thee, my bark, I'll swiftly go athwart the foaming brine, nor care what land thou bear'st me to, so not again to mine. Welcome, welcome, ye dark blue waves, And when you fail my sight, Welcome ye deserts and ye caves, my native land. Good night. Election from the Fourth Address The Chief Difference Between the Germans and Other Peoples of Teutonic Descent We have said that the means of educating a new race of men, which is being put forward in these addresses, must first be applied by Germans to Germans, and that it concerns our nation in a special and peculiar way. This statement also requires proof, and here, as before, we shall begin with what is highest and most general, showing what is the characteristic of the German as such, apart from the fate that has now befallen him, showing too that this has been his characteristic ever since he began to exist, and pointing out how this characteristic in itself gives him alone, above all other European nations, the capacity of responding to such an education. In the first place, the German is a branch of the Teutonic race. Of the latter, it is sufficient to say here, that its mission was to combine the social order established in ancient Europe with the true religion preserved in ancient Asia, and in this way, to develop in and by itself a new and different age after the ancient world had perished. Further, it is sufficient to distinguish the German particularly, in contrast only to the other Teutonic peoples who came into existence with him. Other Neo-European nations, as for instance, those of Slav descent, do not seem as yet to have developed distinctly enough in comparison with the rest of Europe to make it possible to give a definite description of them, whereas others of the same Teutonic descent, as, for instance, the Scandinavians, though the main reason for differentiation, which will be stated immediately, does not apply to them, are yet regarded here as indisputably Germans, and included in all the general consequences of our observations. But at the very outset, the special observations which we are now on the point of making must be prefaced by the following remark. As the cause of the differentiation that has taken place in what was originally one stock, I shall cite an event which, considered merely as an event, lies clear and incontestable before the eyes of all. I shall then adduce some manifestations of the differentiation that has taken place. And these manifestations, considered merely as events, could perhaps be made just as clear and obvious. But with regard to the connection of the latter, as consequences, with the former, as their cause, and with regard to the deduction and consequences from that cause, I cannot, speaking generally, reckon upon being equally clear and convincing to everyone. It is true that in this matter also, I am not making entirely new statements, which no one has heard before. On the contrary, There are many among us individuals who are either well-prepared for such a view of the matter or perhaps already familiar with it. Among the majority, however, there are in circulation ideas about the subject of our discussion which differ greatly from our own. To correct such ideas and to refute all the objections to single points that might be raised by those who are not practiced in taking a comprehensive view of the subject would far exceed the limits of our time and our intention. I must content myself with placing before such people merely as a subject for their further consideration what I have to say in this connection, remarking that in my system of thought it does not stand so separate and detached as it appears in this place, nor is it without a foundation in the depths of knowledge. I could not omit it entirely, partly on the account of the thoroughness of treatment demanded by my whole subject, and partly because of its important consequences, which will appear later in the course of our addresses, and which are intimately connected with our present design. The first and immediately obvious difference between the fortunes of the Germans and other branches which grew from the same root is this. The former remained in the original dwelling places of the ancestral stock, whereas the latter emigrated to other places. The former retained and developed the original language of the ancestral stock, whereas the latter adopted a foreign language and gradually reshaped it in a way of their own. This earliest difference must be regarded as the explanation of those which came later. For example, that in the original fatherland, in accordance with the Teutonic primitive custom, there continued to be a federation of states under a head with limited powers, whereas in the foreign countries the form of government was brought more in accordance with the existing Roman method, and monarchies were established, and so on. It is not these later differences that explain the one first mentioned. Now, of the changes which have been indicated, the first, the change of home, is quite important. Man easily makes himself home under any sky, and the national characteristic, far from being much changed by the place of abode, dominates and changes the latter after its own pattern. Moreover, the variety of natural influences in the region inhabited by the Teutons is not very great just as little importance should be attached to the fact that the Teutonic race has intermingled with the former inhabitants of the countries it conquered. For after all, the victors and masters and makers of the new people that arose from this intermingling were none but Teutons. Moreover, in the mother country, there was an intermingling with Slavs, similar to that which took place abroad with Gauls, Cantabrians, and so on, and perhaps of no less extent so that it would not be easy at the present day for any one of the peoples descended from Teutons to demonstrate a greater purity of descent than the others. More important, however, in, in my opinion, the cause of a complete contrast between the Germans and the other peoples of Teutonic descent, is the second change, the change of language. Here, as I wish to point out distinctly at the very beginning, it is not a question of the special quality of the language retained by the one branch or adopted by the other. On the contrary... The importance lies solely in the fact that in the one case, something native is retained, while in the other case, something foreign is adopted. Nor is it a question of the previous ancestry of those who continue to speak an original language. On the contrary. The importance lies solely in the fact that this language continues to be spoken, for men are formed by language far more than language is formed by men. In order to make clear so far as explanation is possible and necessary in this place, the consequences of such a difference in the creation of peoples, and to make clear the particular kind of contrast in national characteristics that necessarily follows from this difference, I must invite you to a consideration of the nature of language in general, and especially the designation of objects in language by sounds from the organs of speech, is in no way dependent on arbitrary decisions and agreements. On the contrary, there is, to begin with, a fundamental law in accordance with which every idea becomes, in the human organs of speech, one particular sound and no other. Just as objects are represented in the sense organs of an individual by a definite form, color, and so on, so they are represented in language, which is the organ of social man, by a definite sound. It is not really that man speaks, but human nature speaks in him and announces itself to others of his kind. Hence, one should say, there is and can be but one single language. Now, indeed, and this is a second point, language in this unity for man, simply as man, may never and nowhere have arisen. Everywhere it may have been further changed and formed by two groups of influences. Firstly, those exerted on the organs of speech by the locality and by more or less frequent use, and secondly, those exerted on the order of the designations by the order in which objects were observed and designated. Nevertheless, in this also there is no chance or arbitrariness, but strict law, and in an organ of speech thus affected by the conditions mentioned, there necessarily arises not the one pure human language, but a deviation therefrom, and moreover, this particular deviation and no other. If we gave the name of people to men whose organs of speech are influenced by the same external conditions, who live together and who develop their language in continuous communication with each other, then we must say, the language of this people is necessarily just what it is. And in reality, this people does not express its knowledge, but its knowledge expresses itself out of the mouth of the people. Despite all the changes brought about as the language progresses, by the circumstances mentioned above this conformity with law remains uninterrupted. And indeed, for all who remain in uninterrupted communication, and who all hear in due course whatever any individual for the first time expresses, there is one and the same conformity with law. And after all the changes undergone in that time by the external manifestation of the language of this people, it ever remains nature's one same living power of speech, which in the beginning necessarily arose in the way it did, which has flowed down through all conditions without interruption, and in each necessarily became what it did become, which in the end necessarily was what it now is, and in time to come necessarily will be what it then will be. The pure human language, in conjunction first with the speech organ of the people when its first sound was uttered, and the product of these, in conjunction further with all the developments which this first sound in the given circumstances necessarily acquired, all this together gives, as its final result, the present language of the people. For that reason, too, a language always remains the same language. Even though, after some centuries have passed, the descendants do not understand the language of their ancestors because for them the transitions have been lost, Nevertheless, there is from the beginning a continuous transition without a leap, a transition always imperceptible at the time, and only made perceptible when further transitions occur and the whole process appears as a leap forward. There has never been a time when contemporaries ceased to understand each other, for their external go-between and interpreter always was, and has continued to be, the common power of nature speaking through them all. Such is the condition of language, Considered as the designation of objects directly perceived by the senses. And in the beginning, all human language is this. When the people raises itself from this stage of sensuous perception to a grasp of the supersensuous, then, if this supersensuous is to be repeated at will and kept from being confused with the sensuous by the first individual, and if it is to be communicated to others for their convenience and guidance, the only way at first to keep firm hold of it will be to designate a self as the instrument of a supersensuous world, and to distinguish it precisely from the same self as the instrument of the sensuous world, to contrast a soul, a mind, and so on, with a physical body. As all the various objects of this supersensuous world appear only in and exist for that supersensuous instrument, The only possible way of designating them in language would be to say that their spatial relation to their instrument is similar to the relation of such and such particular sensuous objects to the sensuous instrument, and in this relation to compare a particular supersensuous thing with a particular sensuous one, using this comparison to indicate by language the place of the supersensuous thing in the supersensuous instrument. In this sphere, language has no further power, it gives a sensuous image of the supersensuous thing, merely with the remark that it is an image of that kind. He who wishes to attain to the thing itself must set his own mental instrument in motion according to the rule given him by the image. Speaking generally, it is evident that this designation of the supersensuous by means of sensuous images must in every case be conditioned by the stage of development which the power of sensuous perception has reached in the people under consideration. Hence, the origin and progress of this designation by sensuous images will be very different in different languages, and will depend on the difference in the relation which has existed and continues to exist between the sensuous and intellectual development of the people speaking a language. We shall next illustrate this observation clear though it is in itself, by an example anything that arises according to the conception of the fundamental impulse explained in the preceding address directly in clear perception and not in the first place in dim feeling anything of this kind and it is always a supersensuous object is denoted by a greek word which was frequently used in the german language also it is called an idea german idee and this word conveys exactly the same sensuous image as the word gesicht in German, which occurs in the following expressions in Luther's translation of the Bible. Ye shall see visions, gesicht. Ye shall dream dreams. Idea or vision in its sensuous meaning would be something that could be perceived only by the bodily eye and not by any other sense such as taste, hearing, and so on. It would be such a thing as a rainbow, a rainbow, or the forms which pass before us in dreams. Idea or vision, in its supersensuous meaning, would denote, first of all, in conformity with the sphere in which the word is to be valid, something that cannot be perceived by the body at all, but only by the mind. And then, something that cannot, as many other things can, be perceived by the dim feeling of the mind, but only by the eye of the mind, by clear perception. Further, even if one were inclined to assume that, for the Greeks, the basis of this sensuous designation was certainly the rainbow and similar phenomena, one would have to admit that their sensuous perception has already advanced to the stage of noticing this difference between things. Namely, that some reveal themselves to all or several senses, and others to the eye alone, and that, besides, if the developed conception had become clear to them, they would have had to designate it not in this way, but in some other. Also, their superior mental clearness would then be evident as compared, say, with that of another people, which was not able to indicate the difference between the sensuous and the supersensuous by an image taken from the deliberate waking state, but had gone to dreams to find an image for another world. It would at the same time be plain that this difference was not based on the greater or smaller strength of the sense for the supersensuous in the two peoples. But solely on the difference between their sensuous clearness at the time when they sought to designate supersensuous things. But the exact opposite of all that has so far been said takes place when a people gives up its own language and adopts a foreign one which is already highly developed as regards the designation of supersensuous things. I do not mean when it yields itself quite freely to the influence of this foreign language and is quite content to remain without a language until it has entered into the circle of observation of this foreign language, but when it forces its own circle of observation on the adopted language, which, when it develops from the position in which they found it, must thenceforward proceed in this circle of observation. In respect of the sensuous part of the language, such an event, indeed, is without consequences. For among every people, the children must, in any case, learn that part of the language just as if the signs were arbitrary, and thus recapitulate in this manner the whole previous linguistic development of the nation. But in this sphere of the senses, every sign can be made quite clear by directly looking at or touching the thing designated at most the result of this would be that the first generation of pe- that the first generation of a people which thus changed its language would be compelled when adults go back to the years of childhood. With their descendants, however, and with subsequent generations, everything would doubtless be in the old order again. In addition to the special consequence just mentioned, the whole wealth of consequences we spoke of comes about of itself. It is, however, our intention to treat these consequences as a whole, fundamentally and comprehensively, from the point of view of the bond that unites them, in order to give this way, in order to give in this way, a thorough description of the German in contrast to other Teutonic races. For the present, I briefly indicate these consequences thus. 1. Where the people has a living language, mental culture influences life. Where the contrary is the case, mental culture and life go their way independently of each other. 2. For the same reason, a people of the former kind is really and truly in earnest about all mental culture and wishes it to influence life, whereas a people of the latter kind looks upon mental culture rather as an ingenious game and has no wish to make it anything more. 3. From number 2, it follows that the former has an honest diligence and earnestness in all things and takes pains. Whereas the latter is easy going and guided by its happy nature. 4. From all this together, it follows that in a nation of the former kind, the mass of the people is capable of education, and the educators of such a nation test their discoveries on the people and wish to influence it, whereas in a nation of the latter kind, The educated classes separate themselves from the people and regard it as nothing more than a blind instrument of their plans. stop on Child Harold's itinerary as he sails south from the North Sea is Portugal and Spain rounding around the Atlantic coast on his way to the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea as the ship flows onward Child Harold's narration floats over the late destruction at Cadiz, Abuera, and Talavera where the emergence of guerrilla warfare was leaving its mark upon the populace prophesying the new era of war one that was presaged by the First World War the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, and the American Revolution. Half-banditry, half-drilled military, the guerrillas wreaked havoc upon the French and the frightened Spanish citizenry with their barbarity and self-seeking. In 1808, Spain and Portugal played host to the Peninsular War. Though Spain had sided early with Napoleon and his Jacobinical revolutionaries, The monarchists grew wary of Napoleon's stability ensuing his loss at Trafalgar in 1805 when the famous English admiral, Lord Nelson, defeated the combined powers of the French and Spanish navies. As the warm feelings between France and Spain cooled, Napoleon made plans to invade Portugal and to begin his occupation in the name of Liberté, Egalité, and Fraternité whilst the Spanish revolutionaries struck out against the threat, and later, the reality of foreign occupation, in the name of Dios, Rey, y Patria, God-King, and the Fatherland. Great Britain sided with the Spanish and Portuguese in resisting Napoleon, fighting on the behalf of national liberation from the French zealots. But as Child Harold rounds the peninsula, he sees nothing of his fatherland, his God, or his king in the distance. Rather, he sees the image featured on the cover of the 1825 edition of the poem. A giant, standing astride a mountaintop, spear in his left hand, in his right hand snatching death shot from the heavens, poised to hurl death and destruction upon the earth below. From Canto 1, stanzas 38 through 44. Hark! Heard ye not those hoofs of dreadful note? Sounds not the clang of conflict on the heath? Saw ye not whom the reeking sabers smote, nor saved your brethren ere they sank beneath tyrants and tyrant slaves? The fires of death, the bale fires, flash on high, from rock to rock, each volley tells that thousands ceased to breathe. Death rides upon the sulphury Siroc, Red battle stamps his foot, And nations feel the shock. 39. Lo, where the giant on the mountain stands, His blood-red tresses deepening in the sun, With death-shot glowing in his fiery hands, And eye that scorcheth all it glares upon, Restless it rolls, now fixed, And now anon flashing afar, And at his iron feet, Destruction cowers to mark what deeds are done. For on this morn three potent nations meet To shed before his shrine the blood he deems most sweet. 40. By heaven, it is a splendid sight to see For one who hath no friend, no brother there, Their rival scarfs of mixed embroidery, Their various arms that glitter in the air. What gallant war hounds rouse them from their lair, And gnash their fangs, loud yelling for the prey! All join the chase, But few the triumph share. The grave shall bear the chiefest prize away, And havoc scarce for joy can number their array. forty one. Three hosts combine to offer sacrifice. Three tongues prefer strange orisons on high. Three gaudy standards flout the pale blue skies. The shouts are, France, Spain, Albion, victory! The foe, the victim, and the fond ally that fights for all, but ever fights in vain, are met, as if at home they should not die, to feed the crow on Talavera's plain, and fertilize the field that each pretends to gain. 42. There shall they rot, ambitions-honored fools, Yes, honor decks the turf and wraps their clay. Vain sophistry. And these behold the tools, the broken tools, that tyrants cast away by myriads when they dare to pave their way with human hearts. To what? A dream alone. Can despot's compass aught that hails their sway? Or call with truth one span of earth their own? Save what wherein at last they crumble bone by bone? 43. O Albuera, glorious field of grief, As o'er thy plain the pilgrims pricked his steed! Who could foresee thee, in space so brief, A scene where mingling foes should boast and bleed? Peace to the perished! May the warriors' meed and tears of triumph their reward prolong, Till others fall where other chieftains lead. Thy name shall circle round the gaping throng, and shrine in worthless lays the theme of transient song. 44. Enough of battle's minions! Let them play their game of lives, and barter breath for fame. Fame that will scarce reanimate their clay, though thousands fall to deck some single name. In sooth, 'twere sad to thwart their noble aim who strike, Blessed hirelings for the country's good, And die that living might have proved her shame. Perish, perchance, in some domestic feud, Or in a narrower sphere while the rapine's path pursued. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been taught and said. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another. But nothing do it, nothing. we will. Just like all forms of government. Somebody must rule. And I don't like the word rule. Hey! Ah, I this library. Right exactly a government market for gold in the United ah, States. In this country, rules are not imposed. They are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, and you'll Take see that they are. This is from, from Hey! Now, let, hey. let me say something. Person. Let me tell you how wrong you are in the first place.
0: The Culture and energy Podcast. <laughs> now I've forgotten what I wanted
1: to say. So what? The Roman and America collapsed with the, the assassination of Caesar. And why? Because, because of too power much power. During the feudalism generation. blew up with the French Revolution. And why? Because of too much power. And today the whole podcast. world will blow up. And why? Because, because of too much power. <laughs> we
0: have a long way to go. Have you finished?
1: Men- I am not satisfied,
0: we are on the way. If civilization is to divide, we must come back power until the dignity and peace of man are restored. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi, their tracks Cold Heat, I Close My Eyes, and Untouchable. Follow them on SoundCloud and Twitter and leave them a great rating. Also, featuring audio from King in New York, a Charlie Chaplin film, Provided with the express permission of Roy Export S.A.S., who holds the copyright there, too. Featuring music by Enrique Granados, 12 Spanish Dances, Arabesca, guitar arrangement by William Riley, courtesy of newsopen.org. Also featuring music by Pietro Locatelli, cello sonata in D. The first movement played by Elizaveta Sushchenko. This recording is protected by Creative Commons License 3.0, courtesy of newsopen.org.